This is Robbie Martin, co-host of Media Roots Radio. Today, we're going to do a very special podcast. It is the second part in our 9-11 series. Our last installment, our very first installment in this series, was an interview with 9-11 researcher, activist, and author John Gold. It was quite a lengthy episode. We went over everything from the 9-11 Commission to documented, provable 9-11 foreknowledge. We hit on a lot of key important aspects of of not just the foreknowledge, but the 9-11 Commission, such as Bob Carey, ex-9-11 Commissioner, essentially saying that the Bush administration did absolutely nothing to respond to the multitude of warnings that they got not just the presidential daily briefs, but also warnings from other intelligence agencies and government agencies like the FBI, like the CIA. And that runs, you know, in stark contrast to the whole 9-11 debunker claim that hindsight is twenty twenty. You know, they had all this information, the bureaucracy was just so slow and bumbling that they couldn't connect the dots together between agencies and stuff like that. So given that rationale, It doesn't make any sense why the Bush administration, as far as anyone can perceive and anyone knows, why the Bush administration didn't send any top-down orders to do anything in response to these warnings. It's not just that they tried to do things and they failed. As far as we know, they literally did not do anything. You know, 9-11 happened at a time when the Bush administration was considered like a lame duck presidency that was kind of a joke it was a national joke at the time um there was even a show on comedy central uh done by the guys who created south park and it was just like a sitcom that made bush look like a complete psychopathic level moron i didn't want to get too lost in this tangent but and don't worry abby my sister and host of breaking the set will be joining us probably for the next episode if not for the episode after next, because this episode will actually be divided into two parts because in in its entirety, it's over three and a half hours long. She's really busy right now uh, working on an amazing two-part special about her visiting Guantanamo Bay, which will be accompanied by an exclusive Media Roots radio interview with Abby about her entire experience at Guantanamo Bay. A much different presentation than her special will be. And also she's working hard on a on a special in New Orleans right now about the lasting effects of the BP oil spill. This is technically gonna be my first podcast um completely solo. So thanks for listening out there. I really appreciate it. And you're probably wondering what the fuck is this podcast gonna be about? He hasn't said anything. This podcast today is part two in the 9-11 series that we just started. Part two deals with Bill Clinton's war on terror. And the original title was going to be Bill Clinton's unconstitutional war on terror. It doesn't really matter because, I mean, you could use, it's, it's almost redundant at this point. I mean, the war on terror is based on circumventing the law, extrajudicial killings, illegal wiretapping. So you don't even really need to like put that word unconstitutional in there. It's almost self-evident just by what the phraseology of what the war on terror actually means. Approximately at the one hour and 40 minute mark, we'll be ending this installment of the Media Roots Radio 9-11 Bulletin, and we'll continue 
with part two of Clinton's War on Terror, probably next week. There's so many things that happened in the 90s that are crucial to understanding 9-11 better. And not just 9-11, but also a lot of the pre-propaganda that was put into place before 9-11 to sort of create this climate of fear around Islamic terrorism. And not just um, Islamic terrorism, but also state actors that sponsor Islamic terrorism. Or the U.S. media here was actually reporting on alleged connections between Saddam Hussein and bin Laden and the Al-Qaeda network back in 1999. ABC News was reporting on this. They were alleging that Saddam Hussein was not only trying to build a nuclear weapon, that but that bin Laden was trying to procure nuclear materials from Saddam Hussein. And they even claimed that he like met with Saddam Hussein at some point or met with like his commanders or something, his top commanders. And in this program, they're just floating pictures by of, you know, Saddam Hussein overlaid with bin Laden's face and this scary sort of like ominous vibe about it. And it's true to a certain extent that Fox News and all these other news agencies really got to a new level of being like overt propaganda after 9-11. But I think people tend to forget exactly how bad the media was in this regard before 9-11 too. It's mostly ramped up during the years of the Clinton administration, those eight years. Um, And even when it goes back further than that to CNN, CNN was built around the first Gulf War. I mean, its audience was. The liberation of Kuwait has begun. That was sort of what they realized how they can make the most money and, and get the most viewers is by essentially doing like 24 7 war porn coverage. And at the time of the Iraq war, it was like this new fancy thing we were seeing where it was infrared night vision goggles showing bullets being shot through the air and, and, and missiles going back and forth. And I remember that was like all over the news at the time. I watch CNN. That's the world's intelligence service. The unique role CNN is playing. Watching CNN mesmerized. So the whole war porn, like patriotism thing, as far as like the news media is concerned, has been, you know, going on on television longer than the, even the Clinton administration. It's been going on since the George H.W. H. Bush administration. Funnily enough, Dick Cheney is actually on one of CNN's earliest commercials saying that he watches it all the time. It's the best channel out there. The best reporting that I've seen on uh, what transpired in Baghdad was on CNN. And as you listen to this episode, I highly recommend anybody out there who quote unquote woke up during the Bush administration to come into this episode with an extremely open mind and to try to, let's say, hold back some of your preconceived notions about the differences between George W. Bush and Bill Clinton. And the reason I say this is because as I researched a lot of this stuff about Bill Clinton, in some ways I was quite shocked about how similar the direction of the Clinton administration was going to what we eventually saw with George W. Bush's post-9-11 era. Um, you'll hear quite a lot of similar rhetoric from Clinton about WMDs. You'll see parallels with today um, in terms of ISIS taking over Iraq and Syria with the way that the Clinton administration 
back-channeled funding to the Taliban in Afghanistan in the early 90s, and also how one of the most corrupt oil companies in the world, Enron, bribed them with millions and millions of dollars over the course of Bill Clinton's entire presidency to enable them to build a pipeline running through Afghanistan to the Caspian Sea. But I say hold back some of your preconceived notions because during the Bush administration, there was an attempt to use facts as partisan weapons against the previous administration to the Bush administration. When the Bush administration wanted to deflect criticism on them about not stopping 9-11 or not capturing bin Laden, there was a lot of usage of Michael Scheuer's uh, statements about bin Laden, Michael Scheuer's writings about it. A lot of the things he says are probably true, but at the time when I heard them originally, like in 2004 and 2005, I wrongly assumed they were sort of Republican talking points that were designed to deflect criticism away from Bush. I wrongly assumed that they were only that. But in reality, they were using factual information to do that. That doesn't mean that the information itself was invalid. So that's sort of what I had had to think about a lot when I was doing this episode is and also another very remarkable aspect of the Clinton administration, their discussions about Iraq, Saddam, and WMDs, weapons of mass destruction, repeatedly throughout his administration. And the same people in his administration who are saying this kind of stuff over and over again are actually some of the same people that in around 2003, when they were no longer in um, the government, would criticized George W. Bush for lying about WMDs, um, which is to me highly interesting because all these same people were putting out this fear-mongering and propaganda during the entire Clinton administration, including people like Richard Clark, who a lot of people in the you know alternative media movement and even in the 9-11 truth movement sort of hail him as one of the only truth tellers to sort of come out of the 9-11 commission and, and both administrations. But I don't find him very trustworthy or, or, or a man with very much integrity when you actually go back and listen to his, his speeches about Iraq and WMDs. I mean, he sounds exactly like someone from the Bush administration. And there's a lot of things that we think about after the world has changed so much after 9-11 that we mistakenly believe were things that these old Reaganite foreign policy crazies, as they call them, as Ray McGovern says they were called, crazies, Paul Wolfowitz, Rumsfeld, Pearl, Cheney, those crazies. A lot of people think that those people just merely jumped in at the right opportunity in the White House. And after 9-11, they seized on that opportunity to launch all these like anti-terrorism and like game theory and neoconservatives, uh, neoconservative agendas into the Bush administration's foreign policy for their own gain or, or whatever. There's a part missing from that that I think a lot of people skip over or either don't even really know about, which is that the Clinton administration itself, Al Gore, um, Richard Clark, Richard Armitage, Colin Powell, these people inside the Clinton administration we're actually pushing for a similar framework to the war on terror that George W. Bush later declared after 9-11. It wasn't just within the White House. It was pretty much a consensus among like, it was kind of like a bipartisan thing, as a matter of fact. 
a lot of the important key players in foreign policy making, like William Crystal, like Robert Kagan, like Paul Wolfowitz, like Philip Zelikow, they were completely in not just in lockstep with Clinton, obviously not, but they were they were agreeing with Clinton on his approach to the war on terror and actually wanted him to go further. But I'm not saying that to give any excuse whatsoever to Bill Clinton's ways. I mean, I'm not saying that he was like pressured to, you know, and as you might remember from one of our last broadcasts in 1996, PNAC, the project for the new American century, the same think tank that wrote the rebuilding America's defenses document that talked about, we need a new Pearl Harbor. That same think tank wrote a letter to Bill Clinton essentially urging him to go after Saddam Hussein with a new military strike on Baghdad. So there was all that type of shit going on from outside the administration. But what I really wanted to specifically focus on in this broadcast was not just how the Clinton administration was pressured to or they were influenced by neoconservative you know, people outside the administration. I wanted to talk about exactly how the Clinton administration, they set up the framework for the war on terror and Bush was essentially handed the keys to the kingdom. Things like the mass NSA surveillance grid that people think as the post is the, of the post 9/11 world things like that were already f- pretty much fully in place before 9/11 they merely made a few tweaks to it to make it more powerful after 9/11 so we're going to start at the very beginning of president clinton's tenure at the white house and we're going to go chronologically pretty much until george w bush was elected so Bill Clinton became president officially on January 20th, 1993. He beat George H.W. Bush. So James Woolsey, um, one of the most notorious D.C. neocon think tankers currently, he is the director of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, one of the most neoconservative think tanks. Um, if not the most, aside from the Foreign Policy Initiative, which is just the sequel to PNAC. He served as Clinton's CIA director for two and a half years. Leon Panetta, Obama's current CIA director, served as Bill Clinton's defense secretary. But you won't find that many like absurd connections between sort of neoconservatives and Bill Clinton's administration. You'll find a lot of propaganda and pressure coming from outside the Clinton administration trying to encourage him to be neoconservative. But I think what's most striking here is that so many supposed, quote unquote, neoconservative style policies were put into place that were done by mostly Democrats and people who to this day aren't really neoconservative at all. And I think that's really important because I think it just goes to show how bipartisan all this was to begin with, uh, even before Bush Everyone blames a lot of the Democrats for their voting records under Bush and how they all went along with the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war and the Patriot Act. But it started before this. And even though the Republicans were extremely adversarial with Clinton on all these other issues, on Whitewater, on Monica Lewinsky, on his pardons towards the end of his presidency, the one thing that they remained mostly aligned with Clinton on was Clinton's foreign policy. And 
they actually wanted him to go further. I mean, that was what that 1996 letter to him written from PNAC was essentially telling him to do, that they wanted him to go in and attack Saddam Hussein for his WMDs, which back in 1996, they said WMDs, weapons of mass destruction, over five times in this letter to Bill Clinton. I'm getting a little off track, but basically what I'm trying to say is that it is not true, and it's almost this myth that we've developed that there was this big enough difference between the Republicans and the Democrats that Bush just psychotically took it all the way. And he did. I'm not saying that he didn't, but you could do a thought experiment and try to imagine what would the war on terror, post 9-11 war on terror look like if Al Gore had become president. And I'm sure it would look different in many ways, but there's a lot of stuff um, that I'm going to go over that you know, will show you that it might not have been that different, figuring that 9-11 would have happened under Al Gore in the first place, which who knows if it would have. I'm not saying Al Gore is, is, I don't like Al Gore. So let me just put that out there. I don't like Bill Clinton or Al Gore at all. On February 26th, 1993, which is about a month after he was elected president, not elected, but a month after he took office officially inaugurated. A truck bomb was detonated below the North Tower of the World Trade Center in New York City. One of the most noteworthy parts about the 1993 World Trade Center bombing is that the FBI actually had an informant, a mole, not just a regular informant, but like a mole that was specifically working on this case for them, infiltrating the supposed terrorist cell that was planning this bombing against the World Trade Center. The informant was very alarmed towards the end of his sort of working with the FBI on this case. This is before the bombings. He was getting very alarmed, actually, at the FBI's sort of dragging their feet and not seemingly that concerned about stopping the bombing. And because he got so concerned about this, he actually started to record his conversations with the FBI handlers that he had. This guy's name was Ahmed Salam. This story came out not too long after the original bombings happened. But since not that many people died in the 1993 World Trade Center bombings, it wasn't really seriously considered. The Ahmed Salam story didn't really garner many headlines it was briefly covered on nbc nbc news with dan rather and we'll play you a little clip right now of uh that coverage there is some evidence that the fbi may have known of the plot in advance through an informant and might might even have stopped the bombing that killed six people correspondent jacqueline adams has the story FBI agents might have been able to prevent last February's deadly explosion at New York's World Trade Center. They discussed secretly substituting harmless powder for the explosives, but they didn't, according to the FBI's own informant, Imad Salem. Unbeknownst to the FBI at the time, Salem recorded many of his conversations with his handlers. I'm holding 903 pages of draft transcripts. William Kunzler represents Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman and several others charged with conspiring to blow up a series of New York City landmarks four months after the World Trade Center bombing. That case has not yet gone to trial. Kunzler confirmed newspaper reports of the Salem transcripts. 
In one, Salem complains to an FBI agent, since the bomb went off, I feel terrible, I feel bad, I feel here is people who don't listen. The agent replies, hey, I mean, it wasn't like you didn't try and I didn't try. You can't force people to do the right thing. There is material in here to show gross governmental misconduct. But a much lesser unknown piece of foreknowledge actually was revealed to me a couple weeks ago. Someone on YouTube has uploaded about three and a half hours worth of raw news footage from around well, from the day that the bombings happened. You could even see the news footage as early as, um, I think Brian Williams was there, so it must have been ABC or, or some other, or NBC. You could actually see the way that the coverage evolved from the very beginning, which at the very beginning of the coverage, they don't know if it was an actual bombing or not. They, they just know of an explosion has happened at the World Trade Center. They're interviewing people coming out of the buildings, all this kind of stuff. But one of the most interesting things that I heard on that broadcast, I, I watched only about two hours of it, but the reporter who was on the ground there apparently heard from police who were on the scene that someone actually called in a bomb threat at the World Trade Center before it occurred. The people, I guess the 911 operators or whoever received the bomb threat, described the man's voice as Croatian or some kind of like Eastern European or, and or Russian accent. Which is interesting because let's say maybe Ahmed Salam called in a bomb threat because he knew that the FBI probably wasn't going to stop it from happening. He doesn't sound Russian or Croatian. He sounds pretty Arabic, like from his accent. That's an interesting thing that I never heard before. I haven't followed up with that thread. If anyone out there listening wants to follow up on it, we'll play a little clip right here of, uh, of that reporter talking about the bomb threat that was called in. Chris? Yes, this is Morgan. Yes, Chris, Chris. I'm sorry, Jim, I couldn't That's take right. it because of the okay. hubbub which is down here. Don't worry but about it. Late word has just come in from two sources which we find to be fairly creditable in which they state that 15 minutes prior to this explosion down here, there was a phone call to police headquarters via 911. The phone caller, with a very heavy accent, told the operator that there was a bomb about to explode around the World Trade Center. At that point, the police mobilized quickly for a fast search. But during the course of that search, that bomb exploded in the basement of the World Trade Center, B-1, B-2, wrecking havoc down there, uh, damage now estimated to be uh, 100 feet by 100 or 1,000 square feet of damage downstairs. Now, now, the World Trade Center bombing has some interesting facets to it other than the foreknowledge. The so-called blind sheik was apparently the mastermind behind the attacks, and Another terrorist, putting in quotes, Ramzi Youssef was supposedly like the Muhammad Atta of the group. He was like the main one in charge of the physical operation. The blind sheik was just sort of like the guy who was a, you know, he was a religious holy figure, but he was also apparently like a funder and organizer of, of terrorist activities. John Gold pointed out to me, I think it was a couple months ago, that the blind sheik actually had Saudi royal family connections, which I guess is not that surprising given that there's all these Saudi royal family connections to several of the 9-11 hijackers. During the course of this this planning, this operation to um, to launch this uh, this truck bomb, their whole initial plan was actually from the very beginning to bring down 
both of the World Trade Centers by getting one World Trade Center to topple on the other one and break it and like destroy that the second tower also. They were going to put a truck bomb right underneath the main columns of the World Trade Center. Um, it turned out that the the guy, the driver, he didn't actually park it in the right place. He parked it in this like side area of the World Trade Center that hardly caused any structural damage to the building at all. So it's really interesting that people like Rudy Giuliani put his emergency command bunker that was designed for something like a major attack. He put it right in the World Trade Center complex following a, a bombing in that area. It's also really strange that Paul Bremer, one of the the most vocal terrorism experts before 9-11, would decide to work and, and put his business in the World Trade Center complex, even after saying on record how dangerous it was as a location now and how surely the terrorists are going to come back and target it again. And it's been reported by NBC News that the FBI and Ahmed Salam were actually discussing replacing the bomb with an inert powder, like replacing the explosives with something inert and like switching it out so that the, when the when the when this group of terrorists went to the World Trade Center, they would have just essentially set up a a mock bomb and not realized it until it was too late. None of that was done, but instead the bombing took place. There was a movie called The Path to Paradise on HBO. I think it was made in like 1998, which has as a very last scene in the movie. I think Ramzi Youssef being carted off to jail in a helicopter flying over near where the World Trade Centers are. And he points to both of the towers and he says something like, someday, both of those will be knocked down. And he was right. Next time we'll bring them both down. Now, a lot of people have claimed that this 1993 bombing was allowed to happen some people have even gone um, as far as saying it was an inside job the the second possibility is to me seems less likely but what does seem likely is that even back as early as 1993 there was crossover between the bin laden family the saudi royal family or not just the bin laden family but osama bin laden's al-qaeda organization saudi royal family money supposed terrorists who were already located in New York City and the FBI planting moles in these networks. So that's really interesting. And what, and it was reported only, I think, three or four months ago in the New York Times that someone was actually working on behalf of the CIA as a mole inside of Al-Qaeda in bin Laden's inner circle in Afghanistan from the years, I think it was 1994 to 1998. And that was something never revealed in the 9-11 commission or any, anywhere else, as far as I know. Now we're going to move on to some of the next event because there wasn't really any major response done by the Clinton administration to the 1993 World Trade Center bombings. The response came less from the Clinton administration and more from the outside mainstream media who started to sort of inch up just little by little the, the terrorism fears. Um, people like Paul Bremer and Brian Michael Jenkins 
and Richard Clark, they were sort of on the ball with, you know, the pre 9-11 terrorism fears and propaganda um, before anyone else. And I think all of them, except for Richard Clark, didn't actually work for the Clinton administration. Now we're going to move on to something else that happened really early into Clinton's presidency. And that was the Waco siege, the Waco, Texas siege. You're probably wondering, what does this have to do with 9-11? Well, I think in, in one large way, it has to do with what people perceive as post 9-11 militarized police behavior. Because you could argue that in a large way, the local police and the federal police became more and more militarized after 9-11 as a result of anti-terrorism grants and stuff like that. But this sort of behavior was almost our, was being sort of like experimented with, I would say, or I would argue, by the Clinton administration as early as the Waco siege. And I say that because in the way that that was actually accomplished, it was done, I think it was done to make an example out of militia groups or similar sort of groups that want to you want to do similar things. This is also around the time that there was a lot of pushback against militia culture in general um, under the Clinton administration and people who supported the Clinton administration. And also a lot of propaganda was sort of floating out there against so-called, quote, eco-terrorism. This mostly meant animal rights activists or environmental activists who actually did took activist actions such as putting tire spikes on the road or sort of making it more different you know like blockading entrances to to various places or releasing animals from animal testing labs these things were sort of put in a new context in the 90s which they were made to look like almost essentially like terrorist activities, but they weren't necessarily labeled as terrorists until after 9-11. But the climate was already being created to portray them as dangerous people for society, especially militia culture, not so much the eco-terrorism side of it. Moving on to the next part in the timeline. In April of 1993, George H.W. Bush, um, 25 months after leading the U.S. forces to chase Iraq out of Kuwait. Um, and three months after he left office, he actually visited Kuwait for like some sort of commemorative anniversary of his quote victory against Saddam Hussein in the first Gulf War. What was alleged though, is when he was there, it made headlines that apparently Saddam Hussein had some rogue Kuwaitis try to assassinate him, um, with a bomb at his hotel. Seymour Hirsch and a bunch of other people later on, Seymour Hirsch in October of 1993, essentially said that the government's case is seriously flawed, claiming that seven bomb experts found that the bombs didn't really come from where they said. And because of that, the story started to have a lot of holes in it. And it wouldn't be that surprising at all to me, and I'm sure a lot of listeners out there, that George H.W. Bush would make up yet another piece of completely false propaganda about Saddam Hussein in Iraq 
um, to get us to continue to do shit to them even after he's left office. I mean, this guy used to be a former CIA director. So take that into consideration. Um, and he was also the president that, you know, worked with the Kuwaiti king to have the king's niece uh, take acting lessons and make up that story, that infamous story about how Saddam's Republican Guard was throwing babies out of incubators in Kuwait. While I was there, I saw the Iraqi soldiers come into the hospital with guns. They took the babies out of the incubators, took the incubators and left the children to die on the cold floor. I myself buried 14 newborn babies that had been taken from their incubators. Kids in incubators, and they were thrown out of the incubators so that Kuwait could be systematically dismantled. So he's been up to this type of shit for a long time, openly so. So, yeah, I mean, go back and examine that. You know, we've all heard that rationale that George W. Bush uses for getting into Iraq again, saying, they tried to kill my daddy, but they probably fucking didn't. And it was just used to try to keep us on this adversarial footing with Iraq and to essentially urge Clinton or to, to get him to take a more aggressive stance towards Iraq. And that's exactly what he did. Because on June 27th, 1993, the Washington Post reported that U.S. Navy sh uh, naval ships launched 23 Tomahawk missiles against the headquarters of the Iraqi intelligence service yesterday. And what President Clinton said was a, quote, firm and commensurate, unquote, response to Iraq's plans to assassinate former President George Bush in mid-April. The attack was meant to strike at the building where Iraqi officials had plotted against Bush organized other unspecified terrorist actions and directed repressive internal security measures. This evening I want to speak with you about an attack by the government of Iraq against the United States and the actions we have just taken to respond. This past April, the Kuwaiti government uncovered what they suspected was a car bombing plot to assassinate former President George Bush while he was visiting Kuwait City. Therefore, on Friday, I ordered our forces to launch a cruise missile attack on the Iraqi intelligence service's principal command and control facility in Baghdad. Those missiles were launched this afternoon at 4.22 Eastern Daylight Time. They landed approximately an hour ago. Saddam Hussein has demonstrated repeatedly that he will resort to terrorism or aggression if left unchecked. Um, this was sort of a, a hint as to what was to come later in the W presidency. Clinton was already sort of sounding like Bush pretty much in the within the first two months of Clinton's presidency. He was speaking on a televised, televised address to the nation, and he said that he ordered the attack to send three messages to the Iraqi leadership. Quote, we will combat terrorism, we will deter aggression, and we will protect our people. Unquote. And uh, during the Clinton administration, he wasn't just manipulating the law, like with the Glass-Steagall Act, where he pushed through this bill that that made it so that there's less regulation over financial institutions. He also did several tweaks to just criminal justice laws in general, and actually made it easier for certain people to get the death penalty. And it started with Clinton's 1994 omnibus crime bill which, quote, made many changes to U.S. law, including the expansion of the death penalty to include crimes not resulting in death, such as running a large-scale drug enterprise. And in 1994, Clinton said, quote, 
1994 crime bill expanded the death penalty for drug kingpins, unquote. One of the more infamous moments of the Clinton presidency came in the form of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, acronym DADT. Instituted by the Clinton administration in February 28, 1994, um, the policy prohibited military personnel from discriminating against or harassing closeted homosexual or bisexual service members or applicants, while barring openly gay, lesbian, or bisexual persons from military service. The policy lasted until September 20th, 2011. So over 17 years, um, that policy ran for. Now, of course, that happened in the Obama presidency. And if I could point to one single act by Obama taking an executive measure um, that would be classified as the most ballsy thing he's ever done, it was probably repealing don't ask, don't tell, which in all truthfulness, it's pretty sad that that stands up as probably one of his most ballsy direct actions that he took during his entire presidency. And uh, we'll play a little clip here because I don't think most people remember just how discriminatory this policy was, even though it was supposedly designed to allow gays in the military. Um, long debate in the House about this, or the sorry, the Senate, actually. And Colin Powell um, was dressed in his little military uniform, um, sort of arguing on behalf of this policy. Under Don't Ask, Don't Tell, military officials could no longer ask military recruits about their sexual orientation. However, individuals could still face dismissal from the armed forces if they engage in homosexual acts. There's nothing in this policy that states affirmatively that homosexuality is incompatible with military service. And uh, that, that, that as a general rule, homosexuality is incompatible with military service, but it is also true that individual people with a homosexual orientation have served with distinction in the armed forces of the United States. You know, you go back to 1994, and it's actually quite shocking how even the sort of politically correct vernacular back in 1994 when referring to gay culture or homosexuality in general, it kind of makes you cringe now in 2014. Um, it's pretty archaic, uh, semi-offensive language, even on behalf of the people trying really hard to be politically correct and pro-gay. Uh, so I, I find that kind of interesting, just how much time, just how much we've evolved out of that, you know, um, since the 90s. The first statement is that as a general rule, homosexuality is incompatible, but there are exceptions to the rule. You can't subject human nature to a policy which mandates, cel mandates celibacy. And uh, the policy says that homosexuals can serve and act out their homosexual desires as long as they don't get caught. But that's a violation of the Uniform Code of Military Justice. The article, and I know I don't want to get into the legal part, but just briefly to say, Article 125, any person subject to this chapter, this is sodomy, who engages in unnatural carnal copulation with another person of the same or opposite sex or with an animal is guilty of sodomy. October 1994, the CIA and ISI allegedly gives help and secret cache of weapons to the Taliban. Afghanistan. The Taliban is the most fundamentalist Islamic political movement in the world and normally shuns outside scrutiny. From History Commons, the CIA supposedly backs the Taliban around the same time the Pakistani ISI starts strongly backing them. 
According to senior Pakistani intelligence source interviewed by British journalist Simon Reeves, the CIA provides Pakistan satellite information giving the secret locations of scores of Soviet trucks that contain vast amounts of arms and ammunition. Pakistan then gives the information to the Taliban. The Taliban's return was swift and at first extraordinarily successful. In just over a year, they swept across much of the country, suppressing the gangs of robbers and the warring factions by persuasion and, if necessary, by force. Nowadays, they control the south of the country up to the outskirts of the capital, Kabul, which is still held by the government. Their advance from Quetta has taken them along the important strategic road, which links Pakistan with Afghanistan, then on to Central Asia, and eventually Russia. We followed this route first to the city of Kandahar, the Taliban's political and religious center. Reeve says, quote, the astonishing speed with which the Taliban conquered Afghanistan is explained by the tens of thousands of weapons found in these trucks. Hmm, it's, it's beginning to sound a lot like ISIS, isn't it? Very similar situation. Kind of makes you wonder, why do we just leave all these weapons in these trucks? I mean, it, it, the, it says that the trucks were hidden in caves at the end of the Afghan war. I mean, so Pakistan just passed the information to the Taliban. I mean, why would we give it to Pakistan at that point? It just doesn't seem to make sense. To me. The head of the madrasa is a member of Pakistan's Senate. He belongs to a small religious party with close links to Afghanistan. The Taliban movement is a new movement in Afghanistan but it's also the continuation of the holy war. For America and Europe, that war finished when the Soviet Union was defeated. But for the younger generation of Afghans, it still hasn't achieved its purpose. And when they saw that their sacrifice was fruitless, it was natural that this movement would come to the boil and they would return. Embattled Afghan government in Kabul believes it was all done for Pakistan's benefit. Taliban Guru Taliban was created by the Pakistani intelligence services and by its interior minister, General Baba, for their own purposes. Their leaders are puppets of Pakistan, even if the foot soldiers of their organization may be unaware of the links. I put that to General Baba, the Pakistani government minister who first encouraged the Taliban to start their campaign. We have got no favorites. We have had no favorites and we have not been supportive of anyone in that manner. So it... Later in October 1994, the U.S. gives very early support to the Taliban. This is also from History Commons. It says, Afghanistan has been mired in civil war ever since the withdrawal of Soviet troops in 1989. The Taliban arise organically in early 1994, but are soon co-opted by the Pakistani ISI. By mid-October 1994, the Taliban takes over the town of Kandahar in southern Afghanistan. Before the end of the month, John Monjo, the U.S. ambassador to Pakistan, makes a tour of areas controlled by the Taliban with Pakistan's interior minister, Nasrallah Babar, who is said to have been a force behind the Taliban's creation. The State Department issues a press release calling the victory of the, quote, students a, quote, positive development likely to bring stability back to that area. Policy, we, we put the Taliban there. 
we gave the money to the I, I to we, the Pakistanis. Put, this, the you're, Pakistanis. you're breaking news here, Congressman. I don't think it's ever been reported uh, no, before in the United has States. Been. We funded the the Taliban through the Pakistanis, and all that money we could have cut off that money and stopped what was going on. We knew what was going on there. All we wanted was a stable, quiet Afghan. On our last uh, 9/11 centric episode. Uh, we spoke to 9-11 researcher John Gold, and we discussed for a little bit, of maybe like five minutes of the podcast, the Bojinka plot. You know, you hear all this talk that Khalid Sheikh Muhammad was the mastermind of 9-11, you know, after hearing for years and years that bin Laden was the mastermind of 9-11. Um, now that bin Laden's dead, and I guess, you know, when he became less useful for the narrative of the war on terror, sort of turned into Khalid Sheikh Muhammad. Because in a way, that's a more accurate that Khalid Sheikh Muhammad was the mastermind of 9-11. But it's still not actually accurate on its face. Because when you think mastermind, you think someone who, like, hatched this plan, sat in a room with a bunch of people, directed a bunch of people to carry out a plan. But that's not actually what happened. Khalid Sheikh Muhammad was, in a more real technical sense, he was the mastermind of another terrorist plot that was foiled in 1995 called the Bojinka Plot. And the Bojinka Plot was going to be several simultaneous airline, passenger airline hijackings and plane bomb explosions. People were going to smuggle liquid explosives onto airplanes and simultaneously time a, an explosion on several of the planes at once. And there was even a, a side plot to the whole Bojinka plot, which specifically involved killing the Pope when he visited Spain, I guess, because some of this was going to take place in Manila. And I guess th- he was apparently going to visit there around that time. And then it was also going to involve someone hijacking an airliner in the United States and flying it into the CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia, which... You would think, oh, wow, so the Bush administration must have known about that concept of terrorist simultaneous coordinated events like hijackings or suicide attacks. But no, you know, Bush claimed up and down and so did Condi Rice and several other people in the administration that they had absolutely no idea that terrorists would do something like 9-11 on such a massive scale. When here you have the Bojinka plot, which is essentially the same thing, except it's not all about crashing planes into landmarks, although that was also part of it. Um, the Bojinka plot, in some ways, would have been more spectacular than 9-11 had it actually gone off. I mean, what they were actually planning to do. The aspect of 9-11 where both of the World Trade Center towers collapsed was not an intended consequence. And there was no way that they could have known that those towers would fall. As bin Laden himself said, the towers falling, that was a miracle. You know, that was an architectural disaster by any measure, you know, if you believe the official story. Khalid Sheikh Muhammad was was wanted since 1996, not not even because of the Bojinka plot, but because of his involvement with his nephew Ramzi Yusuf's uh, World Trade Center 1993 bombing attempt. The interesting thing is this, I mean, just the idea that terrorists were planning such a spectacular attack back then is proof that intelligence agencies knew the idea of the 9-11 plot six years before it happened. And that's best case scenario. 
The so-called Bojinka project to blow up a dozen planes in the air was for a time the most twisted terrorist operation ever uncovered, chillingly similar to Thursday's alleged plot, adding to speculation that the same group was behind both. It was the kind of al-Qaeda signature, spectacular, uh, synchronized planning, explosive devices. The plan, according to the 9-11 Commission report, was to detonate liquid explosives on U.S. commercial jumbo jets over a two-day period. So this is going to be our first mention of um, a character who will play a, a probably a more important role later when he left the Bush administration. And he made that infamous testimony to the 9-11 Commission where he said, I'm sorry. And that person is uh, Richard Clark. In 1995... The Clinton administration built up and expanded an idea that Clinton had approved in 1993, actually, when he first became president. And that was the CIA renditioning and torturing. This is from History Commons. Quote, the policies proposed by Richard Clark, head of the counterterrorism security group, who is aware of a suspect he wants to have rendered. There was a guy named Cutler in the Clinton administration who made a convincing argument to Clinton, basically saying that this was unconstitutional and it violates the law. So Clinton appeared favorable to this guy's arguments for a little bit until, then the quote goes on, until Vice President Al Gore returns from a foreign trip. Gore listens to a recap of the arguments and comments, quote, that's a no brainer. Of course, it's a violation of international law. That's why it's a covert action. The guy is a terrorist. Go grab his ass. Unquote. And then it continues. However, the operation fails. And the Washington Post reported on this back in 2004. President Bill Clinton signs Presidential Decision Directive 39, PDD-39, approving a rendition program recently proposed by the CIA. The program is the development of an earlier idea also approved by Clinton. We're going to go into the Oklahoma City bombings a little later, but essentially it wasn't even Islamic terrorists or, you know, who were involved in the Oklahoma City bombing, but some of these rendition policies were strengthened and enhanced as a reaction to the Oklahoma City bombing, which is just strange because a rendition would involve going like getting a foreigner out of another country and taking him to another country you know, to be questioned or held in prison. And then we go on to 1995 during the NATO uh, attack on Bosnian Serb targets. Good evening. Tonight, I want to speak with you about implementing the Bosnian peace agreement and why our values and interests as Americans require that we participate. Let me say at the outset, America's role will not be about fighting a war. Our mission will be limited, focused, and under the command of an American general. In fulfilling this mission, we will have the chance to help stop the killing of innocent civilians, especially children, and at the same time, to bring stability to Central Europe, a region of the world that is vital to our national interests. It is the right thing to do. This is a part of the Clinton administration that gets ignored by a lot of people. There's only a few people who really hone in on this on the internet. Some people write about it in a 
sort of dismissive way, like like Chris Hedges, as liberal as he is, he has written about Al Qaeda and Islamic fundamentalist like Mujahideen fighters in Bosnia and this sort of like in passing. He hasn't really talked about it like it's an explosive revelation. But I don't think most people realize that we propped up an administration um, from 1992 to 1995. And when I say we, I mean the Clinton administration propped up an administration that was, that imported radical Muslim fighters. And by proxy, we were essentially importing the radical Muslim fighters because it was with our money. We were propping this guy up and we, we let it happen. Um, and this was already after we were getting supposedly attacked by Islamic fundamentalist terrorists, you know, in our homeland with the 1993 world trade center bombings. So I'm going to read a quote here. Wahhabism was an ideology to the Muslims of former Yugoslavia, though in the Bosnian War of 1992 to 1995, it became imported by radical Muslims. These had been invited to the region by then-President Elijah Azipagovic. When the civil war began in 1992, he invited Mujahideen fighters to the region, incorporating them into the Bosnian army. Azip Begovic was portrayed by the Clinton administration as a moderate, though it was recently revealed that he was in the pay of Saudi al-Qaeda operative Yasin al-Qadi. Azip Begovic was also in direct communication with Osama bin Laden, according to British journalist Eve Ann Prentice. Now, this ties into a whistleblower that um, you might be familiar with. And she was brought up by John Gold on our last uh, 9-11 podcast, uh, Sibyl Edmonds. Um, Sibyl Edmonds was an FBI translator during the Clinton administration and part of the Bush administration. I'm reading from Wikipedia now. It says that Sibyl Edmonds gained attention following her firing from her position as a language specialist at the FBI's Washington field office in March 2002. Um, she had accused a colleague of covering up illicit activity involving foreign nationals, alleged security breaches and cover-ups that intelligence had been deliberately suppressed. She testified before the 9-11 commission, but her testimony was excluded. But what's most interesting about her is she revealed a plan that has been confirmed by third-party sources called Gladio B. And I'm going to read from Wikipedia a little bit about what Gladio B is. Operation Gladio B was an FBI codename adopted in 1997 for relations between U.S. intelligence, the Pentagon, and Al-Qaeda. The name refers to the original Operation Gladio in which U.S. intelligence had relations with anti-communist groups in Europe. Now, this is the most important part that ties into what we were just talking about with NATO, Bosnia, and the Mujahideen and connections with bin Laden there. According to Edmonds, Gladio B identified, among other things, regular meetings between senior U.S. intelligence and current leader of Al-Qaeda, Ayman al-Zawahiri, at the U.S. Embassy Azerbaijan and Baku between 1997 and 2001, with al-Zawahiri and other Mujahideen being transported by NATO aircraft to Central Asia and the Balkans to participate in Pentagon-backed destabilization operations. She added that in 1997, NATO asked Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak to release from prison Islamist militants affiliated to Ayman al-Zawahiri. And Ayman al-Zawahiri, as we pointed out previously, is the real 
quote unquote, mastermind of Al-Qaeda. Additionally, she reported an Al-Qaeda leader had been training some of the 9-11 hijackers at a base in Turkey, a U.S. NATO ally under the noses of the Turkish military. Some of these allegations were confirmed by Sunday Times journalists in 2008 by speaking to Pentagon and MI6 sources. So there's a lot of history there between the U.S. working with Al-Qaeda and or through proxies with Al-Qaeda or and or protecting them um, throughout the second half of the Clinton administration. And I sort of skipped ahead a little bit just to tie into that because there's really almost no mainstream media coverage whatsoever about our relationship with Al-Qaeda in the 90s um, or people related to Al-Qaeda. All while bin Laden had supposedly already declared jihad on us. On February 9th, 1995, Clinton issues an executive order that extends warrantless surveillance capabilities of the Justice Department. From History Commons, it says, President Clinton issues Executive Order 12949, which marginally extends the powers of the Justice Department to conduct warrantless surveillance of designated targets, specifically suspected foreign terrorists. Perhaps the most controversial aspect of the order comes in the first section, which reads, Pursuant to Section 302A of the FISA Act, the Attorney General is authorized to approve physical searches without a court order to acquire foreign intelligence information for periods of up to one year if the Attorney General makes its certifications required by that section. And History Commons sort of goes into the idea that after um, George W. Bush's warrantless wiretapping program was revealed, a lot of Bush supporters and and people in D.C. um, were defending Bush by bringing up Clinton's executive order that I just mentioned. Now, now keep in mind, this is um, before the Oklahoma City bombing. This is before most, or actually pretty much any known Al-Qaeda attack, because the first time al-qaeda was mentioned in the u.s media was 1996 so we're still one year before that the only terrorist attack that's happened uh, under clinton's watch is the 1993 world trade center bombings now we're not going to cover the next event too in depth because plenty of people have already made entire films dedicated to it have done plenty of research on it i'm just going to go over some of the anomalies and the interesting climate that surrounded the Oklahoma City bombing. The Oklahoma City bombing was, it says on Wikipedia, quote, was a domestic terrorist bomb attack on the Alfred P. Murrah building, federal building in downtown Oklahoma on April 9th, 1995. Only one man was convicted of the being like the main person behind the crime. His name was Timothy McVeigh, and he was apparently an anti-U.S. government patriot um, who adhered very strongly to the Constitution, apparently a militia guy. The, the interesting thing about him is that his he was convicted to death. He was executed for the bombing, and his execution was fast-tracked like no other case in that era. He was sentenced to death within five years of, of um, the actual bombing itself, which is a pretty short amount of time for most death row cases. And I'll explain to you why that was in a second. But 
there's a lot of anomalies with the Oklahoma City bombing. There's a lot of foreknowledge that's been reported among law enforcement. There is a lot of anomalies having to do with the official reports of how the bombing actually took place. Um, the official story says that Timothy McVeigh drove a truck up and um, to the front of the FBI building and let off a manure car bomb. The problem with that official story is there were all these reports around that time from various news agencies claiming that there was surveillance camera footage that showed him leaving the truck there and then leaving it. But not just him by himself, but him with like one other Middle Eastern looking man. A lot of news agencies were reporting at the time that they either had surveillance camera footage or they had seen it that showed Timothy McVeigh leaving the, the truck with another person. Officials won't say who or what exactly is on the tape. However, numerous sources have confirmed the tapes exist and that they reveal more than one bomber. Now, sources have confirmed those tapes exist and that they show more than one bomber. The FBI also confirmed those tapes exist when they refused to release them, claiming the video is part of a criminal investigation. But we have been able to recreate some of what may have been captured by downtown surveillance cameras through the eyes of the witnesses. Now, all these accounts share a common and unsettling similarity. The witnesses say they saw several accomplices, including the infamous John Doe number 2. ATF officials tell us the elusive John Doe is still part of this case, but will not comment any further. However, they did tell us that there's a lot about this case we don't know yet. The foreknowledge aspect, I'm not completely knowledgeable on. I know there was foreknowledge that you can research out there. Um, the things that I have seen myself are a lot of video footage from the, either the day of the bombing and the day after the bombing that reported on multiple occasions that the police and the bomb squad were, were pulling out multiple explosives still from inside the building or, and that even an undetonated explosive device was found inside the building. Someone obviously hoped would be a succession of explosions. The first bomb that was in the federal building did go off. It did the damage that you see right there. The second explosive was found and diffused. The third explosive that was found, and they are working on right now as we speak, I understand, both the second and third explosives, if you can imagine this, were larger than the first. So try to imagine two or threefold happening. Mm -hmm. Uh, what we've already seen there. It is just uh, incredible to think that there was that much heavy artillery that was somehow moved into the downtown Oklahoma City Federal Building. Two other explosive devices were found that were not detonated and they were larger. The Justice Department is reporting that a second explosive device has been found in the AP Murrah uh, building in downtown Oklahoma City. And if you actually look at the, the, the damage caused by the Oklahoma City federal building, it seems pretty ridiculous that just one car bomb would have caused that kind of damage. So I think that it's not too out of the question that there were other explosive devices in there. And that's led a lot of people to suggest that the Oklahoma City bombing itself was some kind of inside job um, or they allowed it to happen. But most people lean in the direction of it being an inside job because of those other explosive devices, um, because of the cover up of the existing surveillance video. And there was even a weird thing where a Hustler magazine claimed they had video footage of Timothy McVeigh training on a U.S. military base that specialized in explosives ordinances. I think that video has since been debunked as not actually being Timothy McVeigh.
um, from what I understand. I've seen the video. It doesn't look like him. But the reason that's important is because if that were true, then that would have contradicted the U.S. government's history about him um, and made it so that he was actually working for the military around the same time um, he was supposed to be a rogue terrorist or whatever. In November 1995, U.S. current and former officials play prominent roles in the Dayton peace talks. This is also from History Commons. Richard Pearl and Douglas Fyth, um, these were two of the authors of, uh, or two of the signatories of PNAC and also of that clean break strategy document written for the incoming Netanyahu administration. They act as advisors to the government of Bosnia during the Dayton peace talks. They do not register with the Justice Department as required by U.S. law. Richard Holbrook is the chief NATO civilian negotiator and Wesley Clark, the chief NATO military negotiator. And the Dayton peace talks were essentially trying to get the, the Muslim uh, Mujahideen fighters out of Bosnia. Um, because they were like, they stayed there over the time that they were supposed to. And by that time, they sort of had exploded all over the region and seized large parts of it. But what came in the wake of the Oklahoma City bombing is a few pieces of important information. One was something that was called the, quote, terrorism bill. Long version, the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996. Uh, this is from CNN. Quote, President Clinton signed legislation Wednesday that strikes a mighty blow against terrorism, giving the government many of the anti-terrorist powers he proposed a year ago after the Oklahoma City bombing. So this was passed in 1996. The law makes it easier for the United States to deport non-citizens suspected of terrorism links and bans fundraising in the U.S. by terrorist groups. So that last part's important is because they already had a law on the books pre-Patriot Act and pre any po you know 9/11 legislation obviously that makes it quote makes it easier for the United States to deport non-citizens suspected of terrorism links so you would think that if the US government and if the CIA knew that two of the two of these people on a terrorist watch list were living inside the United States and they didn't have citizenship that they could have at the very least deported them based on this law without any real you know, necessarily a crime being committed because that's exactly what this law was designed for. But it's also was designed for making it easier, or I'm sorry, making it harder for someone in prison to make multiple appeals. And essentially what that does is that it increases the risk of an innocent person being killed who's been convicted of a crime. So if someone's on death row and they it you lessen their chance of being able to make an appeal um there's a possibility that there might be a new discovery of evidence dna evidence and because they're not able to make the appeal like they were before or as um frequently as they were before they might miss that opportunity to essentially show the appeals board that they're innocent so that that law did both of those things it seems to me that what the new law has done is to go beyond people who engage in dangerous acts to target people who have dangerous ideas. It raises a lot of the specters of guilt by association that I thought we learned uh, was not an effective way for this country to proceed during the McCarthy era. And when Clinton signed this Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996, he said, quote, America will never tolerate terrorism. America will never abide terrorists. 
wherever they come from, wherever they go, we will go after them. So it sounds essentially like what Bush was saying uh, no more than five years later. Um, we're going to smoke them out. We're going to hunt them down. I mean, it's sort of leading the way for that idea that this is like a a, um, a fight that we will take wherever. The battlefield is the is the entire globe. Not quite calling it a war yet, but still sort of close to that. Um, in 1996, there's a really interesting anti-terrorism panel or actually let me go back really quickly to the to the Oklahoma City bombing because there was something that I that I remember that I wanted to mention that gives an insight into sort of the public climate around this time and how people were already starting starting to be indoctrinated that terrorists are a, a huge threat and that they can be very scary I mean after all the Oklahoma City bombing um, killed a bunch of children at a daycare. I mean, we all saw those awful pictures of the firemen or the rescue workers. They're holding up that that baby and stuff. Really, really heart wrenching photos of of you know that carnage that was caused by that. There was actually talk around the time of the when the Timothy McVeigh execution was coming up that we should sh- have it viewable on pay per view. So like if he was going to be given lethal injection or the gas chamber or whatever, I don't I don't exactly know how he was. Um, oh, he was killed by lethal injection. It says here in Wikipedia. So they were actually proposing a pay per view death viewing of his execution. Like if, as far as I know, the first ever in the in the history of the United States. And I don't remember who was proposing this or or exactly who was who the original one that suggested that was. But I just remember it being in the media. It was sort of like a story headlines, like, should we do this or not? So that's just an example of how crazy that climate was already getting this like terrorism propaganda. You know, we want to watch this guy be executed on TV. I mean, that's kind of it's really strange territory there that it's hard to explain. You know, I mean, I can't really go much more into it because I, I can't find many references to that on the Internet. But I know that that was the case around maybe like 98, 97. Um, so that law was passed. This is the Pre-Patriot Act terrorism legislation that in some ways, at least the second part of that legislation could have prevented the 9-11 attacks if people in law enforcement actually used this, evoked this law to try to deport some of these suspects. From an indeterminate time around uh, early 1996 till September 11th, 2001, Enron gives Taliban millions in bribes in effort to get Afghan pipeline built. Now, if anyone out there has seen Fahrenheit 9-11, and I'm imagining most of the listeners probably have, um, there was a, a section in the movie about one of the apparent reasons why we went into Afghanistan that had nothing to do with terrorism or Al-Qaeda or bin Laden. And this is one of those reasons. Or was the war in Afghanistan really about something else? Perhaps the answer was in Houston, Texas. This is from History Commons, and I'll I'll read this entry starting now. The Associated Press will later report that the Enron Corporation bribes Taliban officials as part of a no-holds-barred bid to strike a deal for an energy pipeline in Afghanistan. Altul Davada, a senior director for Enron's international division, will later claim Enron had intimate contact with Taliban officials. Presumably this effort began around 1996 
when a power plant Enron was building in India ran into trouble and Enron began an attempt to supply it with natural gas via a planned pipeline through Afghanistan. In 1997, Enron executives privately meet with Taliban officials in Texas. And I'll later talk about that a little bit when we get around to 1997. In 1996, um, there was an anti-terrorism panel that was based around the World Trade Center bombing in 1993. And it was also tying in stuff that had just happened in Oklahoma City. And it featured Paul Bremer, who later became the occupation governor in Iraq under Bush, and Brian Michael Jenkins, who between the two of them, and besides Richard Clark, were some of the most prolific terrorism fear propaganda peddlers in the U.S. at the time. We'll play you a little clip from the panel they did together here, just to show you how much their rhetoric was eventually adopted by the Bush administration. And keep in mind that these were not journalists or media figures like people at the Weekly Standard, like Bill Kristol, who was spreading similar propaganda. These were government consultants. Today, the Council on Foreign Relations looked into the nature and sources of terrorist threats and actions against Americans and how the U.S. can prevent future attacks. First witness is Brian Jenkins, Deputy Chairman of the Kroll Associates. Mr. Jenkins, thank you for being here. Thank you very much. Will terrorism in the future closely resemble terrorism in the past? Or will terrorists escalate their violence? Will terrorists employ weapons of mass destruction? Will terrorists go nuclear? Uh, clearly, the World Trade Center bomber, bombing and Oklahoma City bombing would indicate that the United States is not going to be immune to these worldwide trends. Our next uh, witness uh, on the panel today is uh, Jerry Bremer, former ambassador at large for counterterrorism uh, and managing director of the Kissinger Associates. Ambassador? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Groups. Every uh, one of the most dangerous terrorist groups today has some kind of a state sponsor or state sponsorship. Now, the two new terrorist threats that I spoke of, religious terrorism and mass casualty terrorism, present us with a new conceptual challenge. And it seems to me the question is, are we going to take a decade to try to sort out this new conceptual challenge as we did the first time? Will terrorists enter the realm of weapons of mass destruction? There is no inexorable progression from truck bombs into chemical weapons, biological weapons, or nuclear weapons. Now I'm going to read, from, read to you a pretty long section from a really good Kevin Ryan article um, from his blog, Dig Within, called The Nexus Between Terror Propaganda and Terrorism, Bremer and Jenkins. Um, he specifically goes into how these two guys were, quote, playing extraordinary roles related to aviation security and World Trade Center security in the few years before the 9-11 attacks. They also immensely benefited from the 9-11 attacks. I'm going to start reading different parts from this article. Um, It's very, very long, very thorough, so I recommend that you actually just check the full thing out. But just for the sake of this podcast, I'm just going to go over a few parts. Quote, from 1989 to 1998, Jenkins was the deputy chairman of crisis management for Kroll Associates. Kroll directed the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey response to the 1993 World Trade Center bombing in terms of security upgrades. Now, Kroll and Associates has actually an office located in, I believe, the South Tower and one of the impact points for one of the planes is coincidentally located very close to Kroll Associates. 
The article continues, During this time, Jenkins reviewed the possibility of airliners crashing into the Twin Towers. As the leader of the WTC threat assessment, Jenkins was later questioned about plans that might have been made to avoid what happened on 9-11. Jenkins said, quote, We knew there was no realistic way to protect the skyscrapers from a suicide mission. We couldn't very well mount missile batteries above the windows on the World Restaurant. And that's a funny quote from him because... I forgot to tell you guys this part is that in 1994, a plane actually crashed into the White House lawn and it was like a passenger. I mean, it was like a Cessna. It was a very, really small plane. But after that happened, the Secret Service implemented a protocol where they would actually keep Stinger missiles, which are shoulder mounted RPG heat seeking rockets in case of a suicide attack with a, an airplane. It was later revealed by Wired magazine, the Secret Service actually had Stinger missiles located inside the World Trade Center. Jenkins' history as a special operations officer and longtime right-wing political advisor contributed to criticism of his role at the World Trade Center. Not long after the 1993 bombing, it was reported that Jenkins was trotted out to explain the threat we faced. Described as one of the hoariest holdovers from the Reagan era, Brian Jenkins was both an apologist for and one of the architects of the Contra War against Nicaragua, a terror war aimed primarily at the civilian population and infrastructure. In 1996, Jenkins was appointed to the White House Commission on Aviation Safety and Security, joining Vice President Al Gore, Stratasec Director James Abramson, former CIA Director John Deutsch, and FBI Director Louis Free. Um, recommendations in this commission involve things like putting GPS positioning systems in commercial airliners and passenger profiling and technology technology related to hijacking prevention. Later in 1999 and 2000, Jenkins served as an advisor to the National Commission on Terrorism, led by L. Paul Bremer, otherwise known as the, quote, Bremer Commission. Jenkins was also made primary advisor to the Hart-Rudman Commission. And we're going to go into what the Hart-Rudman Commission is a little later, but essentially I'll give you a little preview now. The Hart-Rudman Commission was suggesting essentially the Homeland Security Agency, and this was long before 9-11 actually occurred, that there was already, the machinery was already being put into motion to form the Homeland Security Agency. And coincidentally, a lot of the people in the pro the proto homeland security agency their offices were located in the wing of the pentagon that was hit on 9-11 the mostly vacant wing that was being uh refortified at the time of the 1993 world trade center bombing paul bremer made a remark similar to that jenkins made in terms of the difficulty in preventing terrorism at the world trade center quote there is just going to be less security at a place like the World Trade Center than at Congress, the White House, or the Supreme Court, said Bremer. It is easier to move around in New York, and it is easier to create a great amount of terror there. End quote. And the article goes on to say, Again, it seems odd that the American who knew the most about terrorism would remark about the danger to the WTC and then be located in exactly that dangerous spot on 9-11. And, um... I think that's notable because, yeah, this Paul Bremer was one of the, at the time, one of the most like influential guys in the government sort of realm. 
who was promoting this kind of information and he chose to go work in the WTC towers for Martian McClellan, um, which is just an extremely bizarre thing to do after he knew how dangerous this location would be. And uh, the article continues on to say, in 1996, while still working for Kissinger and Associates, Bremer wrote a scathing article about Clinton's lack of focus on terrorism. In this article, Bremer called on Clinton to enforce a strong 10-step plan to address terrorism through uncompromising action. Quote, these are not options, end quote, he wrote. And this is in reference to Osama bin Laden. This is what Bremer said about Osama bin Laden um, on Charlie Rose. Quote, this is a crusade he's on, said L. Paul Bremer. There is a quantum difference in the way bin Laden looks at terror. What we are seeing is a shift to terrorism on a more theological basis to groups that are not after precise political goals. You are now in a different game, he says. Quote, there's no such thing as eliminating terror any more than eliminating crime. What we're in for, if we're serious about it, is the kind of sustained effort it took during the Cold War. Not months, not years, but decades. End quote. So he's sort of predicting what's, what the war on terror will eventually become. And Kevin Ryan goes on to say, well, he goes on to compare sort of the, the in that moment, when Paul Bremer said that on this appearance in, on Charlie Rose, that it sort of had been discovered, let's say codified, this concept that terrorism or the new threat that we faced with Al-Qaeda and bin Laden, to actually fight it and what it means and to really fight it properly, it, it needs to be portrayed as a Soviet caliber threat, Kevin Ryan says. So Paul Bremer essentially went on to f to head up or be part of all these terrorism commissions, and they involved a lot of neoconservative people. He was even assigned to head up a commission in 1999 by then Speaker of the House Dennis Hassard. What's most fascinating is going back to his role at Marsh and McClellan. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit here. In t October 2000, Bremer took his new job as CEO of Marsh Political Risk. And Kevin Ryan says, quote, There are few coincidences more startling than this, that the man most responsible for fomenting the fear of terrorism in the United States went directly to a job working in the WTC towers less than a year before 9-11. Bremer's office was in the South Tower. And this is actually true, that his office was directly one of the impact points in the South Tower. Well, it was the impact point, essentially that entire floor that the plane hit. It's just a really interesting coincidence, I guess. Later when he was on PBS around 1999, and I'm going to talk a little bit about this a little later, is that there was another terrorism commission that was done in the private academic sector around the similar time to when Bremer was doing his stuff, and that was headed up by a man who we talked about a lot on the last podcast, Philip Zelikow. And in the Bremer report, in the Bremer um uh, commission, he actually predicts a Pearl Harbor-like event. He uses that term that'll shift the American public's consciousness to a new understanding of the threat of terrorism. We'll go through later. Philip Zelikow essentially did the same thing in 1997, predicted a before 9/11 and after 9/11 sort of style event, like that the that the consciousness would shift so much it would be like a before and after. People were already starting to pick up on the fact that Bremer was sort of hyping up the terrorism fears back during this time. 
and specifically when he appeared on PBS after the Bremer Commission finished up. Joining Bremer was Larry Johnson, a former CIA covert operative and State Department expert on terrorism. Um, And Johnson's remarks during this program were interesting, Kevin Ryan says. And they are interesting for several reasons. I mean, one of the reasons is that he... This is a guy basically planting the seeds pre-propaganda for the war on terror years before, two years before 9-11. And then there's another guy, a former CIA operative, who's there rebutting this sort of propaganda. Like, he already knows that it's propaganda, and he's just smashing it the fuck down. And here's what Johnson said. Quote, What has happened is once the threat of the Soviet Union disappeared... We've got a lot of national security bureaucracies and other bureaucracies that are looking for a way to justify their existence, and many are scrambling to get the counterterrorism bonanza. Like I was way on the ball early on, I mean, that's pretty much (laughs) what all the neocons and Reaganites wanted to do to um, to begin with. And uh, Kevin Ryan goes on to say, on the same program the year before, Johnson was asked if the U.S. government was hyping the threat of terrorism. Johnson replied, Quote, they're grossly exaggerating the problem. They're hyping it. They shouldn't be talking about rising terrorism. What they should be saying is, quote, there's one individual out there that really doesn't like us, end quote. Johnson named OBL as that, as that individual and clarified that, quote, the problem is this. The Saudi Arabian government, not just Osama bin Laden, but many people in Saudi Arabia have been sending money to radical Islam groups for years. And uh, Johnson also said, Two months before 9-11, Americans are bedeviled by fantasies about terrorism. They seem to believe that terrorism is the greatest threat to the United States and that it is becoming more widespread and lethal. They are likely to think that the United States is the most popular target of terrorists, and they almost certainly have the impression that extremist Islamic groups cause most terrorism. None of these beliefs are based in fact. Wow. So this guy is extremely prescient. Um, I'd I'd like to actually read statements that he's made more recently, and I haven't really even heard of this guy before, um, except outside of this Kevin Ryan article. One last thing about Paul Bremer is that Bremer also started a new division of Martian McClellan, which went on to purchase Kroll Associates as well, called Marsh Crisis. And it's interesting because this is Brian Michael Jenkins' company. Brian Michael Jenkins, I forgot to mention, also around 1999, he also predicted a catastrophic Pearl Harbor-like event. And we're going to go into a little bit later how there was something called the Millennium Terror Threat, where during the whole like Y2K crisis, people thought computers were going to all like go crazy and go on the fritz and all that shit. During that crisis, the, all the intelligence agencies in the United States were clamoring to stop what they referred to as the Millennium Terror Threat. And they thought that it was going to be a massive Islamic terrorist attack on the United States, like a coordinated Bojinka plot style attack. And essentially, Bojinka was 9-11 before 9-11. So a similar type of mass coordinated event in the year 2000, like on the, as soon as the, the um, clock struck midnight. That's just another example of how it's complete bullshit that the Bush administration and that, you know, the government had no idea that something like this was coming or that it was even potentially a possibility. So next up on our timeline are a bunch of events related to Al-Qaeda and bin Laden during the Clinton administration. 
But first, in January 2nd, 1996, um, this is from History Commons. New Republic editors say Bosnian intervention aimed at increasing U.S. influence in the Middle East. And the person who writes this editorial says, quote, We should view the Balkans as the western frontier of America's rapidly expanding sphere of influence in the Middle East. This guy's pointing out that people should support our intervention in Bosnia, not because of the Bosnian people, but because um, we need to strategically start taking over the Middle East and uh, uh, exert influence over it. Later in January 1996, um, this is also from History Commons, Muslim extremists plan suicide attack on the White House. U.S. intelligence obtains information concerning a suicide attack on the White House planned by individuals connected with Sheikh Omar Abdul Rahman and a key Al-Qaeda operative. This is the important part. The plan is to fly from Afghanistan to the U.S. and crash into the White House. And then, in, and then a little later in 1996, um, Richard Pearl and Douglas Fife wrote what they referred to as the clean break strategy, which was a document written for a think tank to aid the Israeli government at the time. And it was coming up with all these suggestions about how to take a more aggressive stance against not just Hamas and the Palestinian population, but also external, quote, threats to Israel, like Saddam Hussein, Iraq, Syria. It was advocating for waging proxy war against all these other Middle Eastern countries, um, completely unprovoked, not based on any ongoing or imminent threat whatsoever. And then the timeline continues. From History Commons, shortly after February 1996, Saudis failed to give CIA bin Laden documents before 9-11. Shortly after the CIA's Alex station is created to go after bin Laden, the CIA asks the Saudi government to provide copies of bin Laden's records, such as his birth certificate, passports, bank accounts, and so forth. But the Saudis failed to turn over any documents. By 9-11, the CIA will not even be given a copy of bin Laden's birth certificate. Which, if you really think about that, it's truly shocking that 14 of the 19 hijackers on 9-11 were Saudi Arabian. We know that the Saudi royal family was funding two of the hijackers at the very least. And for some reason, during the entire Clinton administration and the first year of the Bush administration, they tolerated the Saudi Arabian government refusing to hand over information about bin Laden. A little later in 1996, this is also from History Commons, FBI fumbles flight school investigation. Murad and 11 other Al-Qaeda pilots trained in the U.S. Finding a business card for a U.S. flight school in the possession of Operation Bojinka plotter Abdul Hakim Murad, the FBI investigates the U.S. flight schools Murad attended. He had trained at about six flight schools off and on starting in 1990. Now, there's a reason I've been mentioning the Bojinka plot stuff so often at the risk of repeating myself and sounding like a broken record the bojinka plot was the proto 9-11 plot according to this guy that was captured this is a quote from history commons Murad had already confessed to philippine authorities the names of about 10 other associates learning to fly in the united states and the philippine authorities had asserted that they provided this information to the u.s the u.s claims ignorance on this but what's to me really fascinating about this is that not only were these hijackers planning to hijack multiple passenger airliners and blow them up in the middle of the sky, 
and use one of the hijacked airliners to be used as a missile to fly into the CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia. They also took flying lessons in the United States. Ten of these people took flying lessons in the United States. So you would think at the very least, all these flight schools across the United States would be given some kind of memo or something from the FBI or other intelligence agencies saying, if you see any suspicious activity with Islamic men, Arabic men trying to take flying lessons, um, then, you know, contact us or whatever. I have no idea why that wasn't done before 9-11. As we learned from our last podcast with John Gold, this only happened in one instance previous to 9-11, and it was not from the FBI warning these flight schools, hey, um, report any suspicious activity. It was because one of the, the supposed 20th hijacker, Zacharias Mosawi, was taking flying lessons and acting so suspicious and over the top, saying things like he didn't want to learn how to land, he only wanted to learn how to take off, even quoting some like jihadi rhetoric uh, at this flight school. They reported him to the FBI because of his suspicious behavior. And he was, as a result, detained in August of 2001 by the FBI on an immigration violation. And then we go to the next event in the timeline, which is that at some point in early 1996, we don't know the exact date because this is revealed after 9-11. This is also from History Commons. The Mossad supposedly plans to kill bin Laden. Quote, Israeli spy agency Mossad supposedly plots to kill Osama bin Laden, according to the Israeli newspaper Yedioth Aranoth. It recruits a female confidant of his and assigns her the mission of killing him. Mossad has been trailing bin Laden while assisting the U.S. and Egypt in investigating a failed assassination attempt on Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak. But the plan is aborted due to tensions between Israel and the woman's country. You could go on to read more details about this on History Commons, but this is fascinating to me because only a, you know, a few years later does CNN actually get an exclusive interview with bin Laden in Afghanistan. William Cooper, um, who's considered sort of the proto-Alex Jones of the Patriot Movement, he was, he was killed um, around the time of 9-11 by the FBI for apparently um, drawing a gun on them. Bill Cooper is actually the guy who predicted 9-11 would occur. And now we're being bombarded with messages that Osama bin Laden is planning to attack the United States of America and Israel. And I'm telling you, be prepared for a major attack. But it won't be Osama bin Laden... He also brought up the point, why is it that one of the most resourceful assassination spy agencies in the world, the Mossad, has no idea where he is and can't find him, but yet here is CNN going and waltzing right up into his compound and interviewing him. It really does not make any sense at all, if you look at it from that perspective. Supposedly, a CNN reporter found Osama bin Laden, took a television camera crew with him went into Osama bin Laden's hideout interviewed him and his top leadership his top lieutenants and colonels and generals in their hideout this is a CNN reporter with a camera crew why do all these fools believe this charade 
that a CNN reporter and his little camera crew can do with all the money and all the assets and all the eavesdropping and all the intelligence and all the satellites and all the undercover operatives in the world can never do. It's because they're not trying. They don't want to. So I think it's very safe to say that during the Clinton administration, there was a policy of false engagement with Al-Qaeda, maybe to placate some of the other people in various agencies who were really wanting to go after bin Laden, like Michael Schur. But in the end, and this is a thing that Republicans always tried to use against Clinton to try to take the focus away from Bush allowing 9-11 to happen. They would say that Clinton had all these opportunities to get bin Laden, to kill bin Laden, but he didn't ever take them and, and, would, and would drop the ball at the last minute, which is actually true. You can go back and read that. But they try to turn it into a partisan issue, sort of divide and conquer style issue. But in reality, both presidents were doing this, not just uh, uh, Clinton. But see, Clinton had a lot more time to go after bin Laden before 9-11. And not only Clinton, but the Israeli Mossad already had plans to assassinate him in 1996. And they somehow weren't able to or didn't follow through with it. I find that extremely hard to believe unless someone at a higher level was making sure that bin Laden, Zawahiri, and other high-level members of Al-Qaeda were protected. And this goes back to what Sybil Edmonds claims from before 9-11, Gladio B. Look up Gladio B. And if you can believe that, that what she's saying is accurate, then we were protecting them. We absolutely were protecting them. And not only were we protecting him by just not doing anything to try to kill him or capture him, there's so many other examples of Western-friendly countries protecting him or at least harboring him or letting him travel into the country unimpeded. Um, there was a part on the timeline that we didn't go over earlier that I think it was in around 1995, Bin Laden traveled to Brazil and apparently he was able to do that on a flight and no one stopped him. But we continue on to around the middle of 1996. This is also from History Commons. The Saudi Arabian government, which allegedly initiated payments to Al-Qaeda in 1991, increases its payments in 1996, becoming as Al-Qaeda's largest financial backer. Which is not that surprising, I suppose, um, since we know about them, the royal family, actually funding specific hijackers. But it's still, I guess it's, it's, you know, it still contradicts what we know, according to like sort of the mainstream narrative. In the summer of 1996, Bin Laden is in Qatar. Presumably, one of these times is in May 1996, when bin Laden stops by Qatar while moving from Sudan to Afghanistan and is reportedly warmly greeted by officials there. Former CIA officer Robert Baer will later claim that one meeting between bin Laden and al-Tahini takes place on August 10, 1996. So another Western-friendly um, Middle Eastern country, Qatar, just greets him into the country with open arms and even conducts meetings and talks with him at the highest government levels. And then we continue on to around the exact same time, well, maybe a little earlier, May 1996, the U.S. fails to capture Khalid Sheikh Muhammad living openly in Qatar. 
And I'm going to quote from History Commons here. Since Operation Bojinka was uncovered in the Philippines, many of the plot's major planners, including Ramsey Yusuf, are found and arrested. One major exception is 9-11 mastermind Khalid Sheikh Muhammad. He flees to Qatar in the Persian Gulf, where he has been living openly, using his real name, enjoying the patronage of Abdullah bin Khalid Al-Tini, Qatar's interior minister and a member of the royal family. And that Abdullah bin Khalid al-Tini is the guy that Osama bin Laden met when he also came to Qatar. And then after the summer of uh, 1996, this is the kind of stuff that Clinton got most of the press for around this time. On September 21st, 1996, Bill Clinton signed into law the Defense of Marriage Act, which defines marriage for federal purposes as the legal union of a man and a woman. Yeah, super liberal dude right there, um, enshrining the idea that heterosexual marriage is the only appropriate form on a federal fucking level. Congratulations, Bill Clinton. Now, I'm going to go into, this is where we're actually going to start in terms of subject matter. A lot of the critiques and, well, harsh critiques against Bill Clinton for either dropping the ball on the hunt for Osama bin Laden, sitting on information about his whereabouts, obstructing attempts to either assassinate or capture him or even extradite him. Keep in mind that most of these criticisms come from pretty partisan people who love Bush or who really approved of Bush's, quote, war on terror, a completely bullshit war against a tactic. And also, some of them come from like DC think tanks. And the one, the quote I'm going to read from you now is actually from a guy who was from the Council on Foreign Relations. So you have to take these things with a grain of salt from a lot of these people who are looking back retroactively at all this stuff. But it's been verified by multiple third party accounts. It's not just people who are against um, Bill Clinton and, and that kind of thing. Here's an article from December 5th, 2001 not too long after 9-11 actually occurred, by a guy named Manzur Ijaz. He says that, quote, President Clinton and his national security team ignored several opportunities to capture Osama bin Laden and his terrorist associates, including one as late as last year. I know because I negotiated more than one of the opportunities. From 1996 to 1998, I opened unofficial channels between Sudan and the Clinton administration. I met with officials in both countries, including Clinton, Sandy Berger, and Sudan's president at the time. The president wanted terrorism sanctions against Sudan lifted. He offered the arrest and extradition of Osama bin Laden and detailed intelligence data about the global networks constructed by Islamic Jihad, Hezbollah, and Hamas. The silence of the Clinton administration in responding to these offers was deafening. Um, there's an interesting guy named Michael Schuer, who is apparently head of the CIA's ALEC station, or one of the heads, um, until the very end of the Clinton administration. He says, quote, that Richard Clark's book Against All Enemies is a crucial component to the September 11th panel's failure to condemn Mr. Clinton's failure to capture or kill Osama bin Laden in any of the eight to ten chances afforded by CIA reporting. Mr. Clark never mentions that President Bush had no chance to kill bin Laden before September 11th, which is false. That's I don't that's completely bullshit. And I'll continue on and leaves readers with the false impression that he, Mr. Clinton and Mr. Clinton's national security advisor, Sandy Berger, did their best to end the bin Laden threat. 
That trio, in my view, abetted Al-Qaeda, and as the September 11th families were smart, they would focus on the dereliction of Dick Clark, Bill Clinton, and Sandy Berger. And then from an article from factcheck.org in 2008, they find some quotes from Clinton to contradict the idea, because later Clinton denied that he had this opportunity to extradite bin Laden from the Sudan in 1996. But originally he had acknowledged it, but had a, a strange excuse for it. And, and I'll read that now. These are Clinton's exact words from 2000, from February 2002. Clinton says, quote, so we tried to be quite aggressive with Al-Qaeda. We got, well, Mr. bin Laden used to live in Sudan. He was expelled from Saudi Arabia in 1991. Then he went to Sudan. We'd been hearing that the Sudanese wanted America to start dealing with them again. They released him. At the time, 1996, he had committed no crimes against America, so I did not bring him here because we had no basis on which to hold him, though he knew he wanted to commit crimes against America. So I pleaded with the Saudis to take him because they could have, but they thought it was a hot potato and they didn't, and that's how he wound up in Afghanistan. This article goes on to say that Clinton later claimed to have misspoken and stated that there had never been an offer to turn over bin Laden. It is clear, however, that Berger at least did consider the possibility of bringing bin Laden to the U.S. But as he told the Washington Post in 2001, the FBI did not believe we had enough evidence to indict bin Laden at that time and therefore opposed bringing him to the United States. That's just ridiculous because we already had a rendition policy in place for people that we weren't necessarily trying to bring federal indictments to. Um, as we went over already in this broadcast, Richard Clark, Al Gore, and Bill Clinton were all on the same page of being able to rendition, which is essentially illegally kidnap terrorist suspects out of their home countries and bring them to another facility. Uh, all violating international law. So it's just funny that they would use that sort of guise that, oh, well, we didn't, we, we couldn't bring any indictment to him. So why would we have kidnapped him? Clearly, the United States was already very interested in monitoring bin Laden. They were concerned about his ability to harm America. So I just find that to be complete and utter bullshit. So now we start getting a little bit of the retroactive propaganda to pave the way for that part of the official story that says that the agencies were not sharing information with each other. And that is the primary reason why 9-11 occurred. It's not that they didn't have the dots. It's not that they didn't have the information. It's not that they didn't know where these people were or who they were. It's that the agencies were obstructing the information from being shared with each other, which I think is completely hilariously false it's it but it, at the same time it allows a, a cover story that sort of covers all bases it allows the u.s government to sort of give a blanket excuse and because individually none of these individual agencies could be blamed because hey guess what they were all weren't sharing with each other and they all had information individual dots that if they were all able to be connected together between all the agencies then we would have been able to stop the attack so it's a problem with the bureaucracy, they say. And some of the stuff I'm about to read to you will have some of that flavor to it. But I think it's also very important because parts of it are probably true. And most of those parts revolve around how just how deeply and how all-encompassing the NSA was actually surveilling not just Osama bin Laden's personal cell phones and communications, but the entire... Al-Qaeda network, including information about some of the actual hijackers themselves and their whereabouts before they traveled to the United States. In between February 1996 and May 1998, 
CIA's bin Laden unit asks NSA for full transcripts of Al-Qaeda communications. This is a quote from History Commons. Alex Station, the CIA's bin Laden unit, the other senior agency officers repeatedly asked the NSA to provide transcripts of intercepted calls between Al-Qaeda members. So Michael Schuer will say, over time, if you read enough of these conversations, you first get clued into the fact that maybe bottle of milk doesn't mean bottle of milk. And if you follow it long enough, you'll develop a sense of really what they're talking about. But it's not possible to do unless you have verbatim transcripts. So Michael Schuer is probably passing the buck a little bit and claiming that the NSA had all this juicy information that they simply weren't sharing with them properly enough. The National Security Agency was collecting a specific channel of communications uh, of Osama bin Laden. And when you, when you track terrorists, it's very important to have the verbatim conversations uh, instead of a gist because they use different words for code and different kinds of expressions. And we asked for that for the entire, the entire tenure I had, which was 40 months. And NSA stood behind their lawyers and refused to share that with the CIA Astonish for 40 months. Astonishing. We could probably sit here and talk to you for two hours and be uh, uh, shocked, stunned, and amazed at some of the things. On May 12, 1996, Secretary of State Madeleine Albright will make a devastating statement to the U.S. media. UNICEF determined that 500,000 children under the ages of five, as of 1999, dying at more than twice the rate that they were 10 years ago. And this is based on the sanctions that existed and that were imposed on Iraq after the first Gulf War and that continued through the entire Clinton administration. But this is what Madeleine Albright had to say about that. We have heard that a half a million children have died. I mean, that's more children then died when, when, in, in Hiroshima. And, and, you know, is the price worth it? I think this is a very hard choice, but the price, we think the price is worth it. Now, happening right around the same time as all of this NSA, Al-Qaeda monitoring, and CIA Alex Station activity, in May of 1996, the U.S. seeks stability in Afghanistan for Unical Pipeline. Uh, that's Unical 76 uh, Gas Company. This is uh, from Robin Raphael, Deputy Secretary of State for South Asia. I found this on History Commons. It says, Robin Raphael speaks to the Russian Deputy Foreign Minister about Afghanistan. She says that the U.S. government, quote, now hopes that peace in the region will facilitate U.S. business interests, unquote, such as the proposed Unical gas pipeline from Turkmenistan through Afghanistan to Pakistan. The NSA discovers a communications hub Al-Qaeda uses to coordinate its global operations. The hub was set up in May 1996 by Ahmed Al-Hada, a close associate of Osama bin Laden, and is discovered at some time in the next six months. According to a PBS documentary, the NSA discovers the hub by monitoring bin Laden's calls from his satellite phone in Afghanistan. Once he starts dialing from Afghanistan, NSA's listening posts quickly tap into his conversations by tracking calls in and out of Afghanistan. Now, the funny thing about this is the official story will later revise this to say that while they were tracking bin Laden's calls and, you know, other heads of Al-Qaeda's telephone calls, they didn't know the numbers that were being dialed out to. They didn't know who was on the other side of these telephone calls, which I find just absurd on its face because... I remember caller ID existing for like 
American telephone consumers back in the late 90s. It's just funny that the NSA would claim that this is the part of the technology they didn't have. And this is all while Bill Binney for the NSA was already developing the thin thread program, the backbone that would later be used for a quote, the program that Michael Hayden would tweak and change into the mass NSA surveillance spying grid that we know of today. Now, the next event in our timeline is something from pop culture, but it's important. In March 1996, a movie features planned suicide attacks with commercial airliner jets. And from History Commons, it says, The movie Executive Decision, a military action film, has a plot about a group of Arab terrorists who hijack a transatlantic jet to gain the release of their leader who is imprisoned in the United States. But what initially looks like a traditional hijacking is in fact a suicide mission. Just more evidence to pile on to that pile that people in the administration could have never conceived of such a plot. We have the Bojinka plots. We have other uh, terrorist plots where they involved um, using commercial airliners as weapons. And then now we have a film in the United States that's sort of echoing a lot of the cultural fears that are already going around at the time in, in pop culture and in mainstream culture. People in the mainstream are already very well aware and already inundated with fears that this could happen. Tom Clancy wrote books about it. I mean, this was very much in the mainstream public consciousness that terrorists could use airplanes as weapons. Thanks for listening to part one, the 9-11 Bulletin, Clinton's War on Terror. Next week, we'll post part two. Take care. (laughs) 